Welcome to the Live Your Purpose podcast, featuring compelling interviews with big-hearted people in the Oklahoma City metro area who are leading, creating, and innovating on purpose. Get inspired by conversations with passionate difference makers from our local community. I'm your host, Charles Gossett, Life Purpose Coach and founder of Full Integration Coaching. On today's episode, we sit down with Mark Walford, a leading voice in transformative learning with a mission for helping students to expand their perspectives about themselves, others, and the environment. And now, the Live Your Purpose podcast. Welcome to this edition of the Live Your Purpose podcast. I'm here today with Mark Walvard, a resident of Edmond, husband of Kelly, and father of two. He currently works as an assistant director of the Student Transformative Learning Record at the University of Central Oklahoma and as an adjunct instructor of biology at the University of Oklahoma. He earned his Master and Bachelor of Science degrees in biology in Oklahoma and has worked full-time in higher education settings in both North Carolina and Oklahoma, enhancing student learning and success through the use of technology and transformative learning methods. Mark gives regular conference presentations, helps run the annual Oklahoma Compost Conference, trains faculty on his campus and elsewhere, and has published research about frogs, crabs, student success, and educational technologies. He currently serves on the board of directors for three nonprofit organizations, Partners for Madagascar, Association for Biology Laboratory Education, and Joiners. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for that introduction, Charles. It's great to be here. I'm so glad to be here with you. Um, we're on location today, too, here at the University of Central Oklahoma in the Career Development Center. So it's really exciting to be here. It is. This is a great place to remember that students are being successful, graduating, going out to jobs or better jobs or raises or promotions. So it's, a, it's an exciting point of campus. Yeah. Thanks for setting it up. Yeah. So as you may know, we start each episode with a kickoff question, and you've chosen yours. And so we'll, I'll uh, put that before you, and we'll just see where the conversation takes us. That sounds good. Okay. So, Mark, when did you know that you wanted to be doing what you're doing today? I think in a lot of my life, I feel like things have just kind of opened. Doors and windows have opened, and I've followed. So I'm not sure it was as intentional as some people as they follow a passion or a mission. Uh, but for me, I think it was about five years ago. So coming up next month, I was hired in this very department at University of Central Oklahoma. Um, and that was because I had been looking for a change of location geographically. I was working in Norman full time and commuting from Oklahoma City. And it made more sense to try to find a place closer. There was also this sense that I wanted to be at a slightly smaller campus, slightly smaller environment that had some teaching and student focus. My goal and work had already been to help students succeed and at the time it was through tutoring um, helping them succeed academically and I just started to think more about this bigger idea of helping students in life not just with academics academics help them with life but these bigger pictures and perspectives and worldviews that I saw starting to change and at the same time while looking for jobs and thinking about that I started reading about UCO's transformative learning pillar or transformative learning approach. So one of our four pillars is that we give students transformative learning experiences. And as I started reading about that, it kind of resonated with me, uh, again, five, six years ago, that 
this was a place that was helping students to be prepared for life and to expand their ideas about um, their place in the world and their culture versus other cultures and their own health and wellness or environmental health and wellness. So these bigger picture ideas that I hadn't really thought about as being uh, a purpose or something I had to be a part of in higher education, uh, just even reading online about UCO's transformative learning approach really started to open my perspective and thoughts about where I could be and what I could do. So I started trying to pursue um, a job, a career at University of Central Oklahoma to be a part of that mission, that pillar that they had. Yeah, absolutely. And so you were you know, already teaching, already involved at the University of Oklahoma and teaching biology? Correct. Okay. And of course, what you're still doing to yes. this day. Yes. And additionally, you've added transformative learning for the reasons that you've described. And so that attracted you to the campus and, and, and they took you on and here you are. And I'm glad that we got the chance to meet. I, um, I ran across transformative formative learning quite by accident. I was uh, on campus walking the labyrinth one day and saw uh, the plaque that uh, points towards the transformative learning program and, and described how the labyrinth got there. And I thought, what is this? You know, it sounded fascinating. And so I went and looked it up and looked online and, and uh, started to have conversations with folks in uh, the transformative learning center, uh, which is where we met. And so since then, it's been fascinating with with my own background in, in natural resources for me, you know, in, in forestry, and then to hear your passion for biology and, uh, and also for learning and uh, student outcomes and, and the people that they become through the educational process, including academics, of course. And so where were some of your early interests in education itself, maybe through the lens of biology? Um, originally, I was felt a little bit shunned or antisocial or um, partly because of my religious upbringing. Maybe it was kind of like, a, well, people will influence me badly. I should stay away from people and be, you know, monk-like, um, not in a cave or in a mountain, but in my room, in my house, or even when around other people at school. And so early on, I very much was, I love nature and the biology that happens there and I get curious and want to learn about all the things that are happening. And it was very much a, well, that's my path. I'm going to uh, contribute to the world of science through research, getting a master's and hopefully a doctorate to be able to do research on uh, ecology, frogs, lizards, just to know about uh, this amazing biodiversity that's out there. Um, and it wasn't until I was working on my master's combined with maybe you know a girlfriend or two that helped me see that people were okay or could be interesting. So yeah. on the social side, mm -hmm. I had some brave young women who decided I was worth working on uh, to improve me, uh, to transform me. And then also on the academic side, I started being a teaching assistant to get funding for my master's degree, which, which I was very grateful to have the opportunity to get. So that allowed me to be in front of students and work with students and really it was that experience of just being there, working with students, seeing that it was something I could do. So I could communicate science well, now that I was learning science, now I could actually communicate it to students. Um, and I, I can't downplay the importance of um, Dr. Marielle Hoffnagels, who's a, a textbook author and an amazing professor at University of Oklahoma. She was my, my mentor in this teaching experience. She was the professor of the class. Uh, I was one of the TAs in the lab for this intro biology class. And just seeing her passion for teaching and 
student success really rubbed off on me and she encouraged my creative ideas to contribute to the class setup and the curriculum design even for that class. So that really was the shift between, uh, I mean, several things, but that point kind of second, third year master's student at University of Oklahoma under Dr. Mario Hoffnagels that uh, coalesced this idea that I didn't have to be antisocial, contribute to science only. There actually was this um, interest and um, good outcomes that I got from being able to be in front of students, teaching them science, seeing them get excited about science, ecology, nature, and the world. Some who changed their majors to science fields because of it, others who didn't, but they still, uh, I hope and heard, had an appreciation for uh, science and the natural world. Yeah. So through these early experiences that you had connecting with nature and being curious about it, um, you, it sounds to me like you, you held on to that. You had some other experiences where you know, you know what, maybe I don't want to be around people as much. Maybe I want to have like a, a monk-like existence, which, by the way, I can relate to in my own life. <laughs> um, but then you found ways to connect. And of course, other people that influenced you, which I think is, is critical for, for me to hear and for other, uh, our listeners to know that there's, there's always going to be somebody in our lives, if we're looking carefully, that, that impacts us, that influences us, that causes us to take pause and, and maybe even transforms our lives in some important ways um, and gives us a new sense of ourselves and what we're able to do and maybe what we want to do. And so what, what I find particularly fascinating is that when you recognize that you could have an impact on students and that you could communicate your, your love of science and, and the truth of science, the um, academia of science, along with your passion for it, to students, it impacted uh, it, it had the possibility of impacting these students in, in many life-changing ways. Yeah, and, and part of that, I think, we mentioned the, the early love for, for nature, at least, and then science. Um, I, I don't know how other people experience nature growing up or right away, although I've gotten some hints from talking to students and assignments I've give stu given students to go do kind of nature walks just to observe, not to get somewhere or to... Uh, hunt something or gather something, but just to observe. And so I get the sense that a lot of people kind of have that childhood mm -hmm. curiosity built in, and sometimes yeah. it goes away quicker than others. So I don't know if mine was uh, cultivated differently than other people's, but I do think back to uh, before I got to the people are okay phase, the why I love nature so much phase, mm -hmm. I really can identify um, again, people and experiences that really tied me to nature as this spiritual place where I could connect to some bigger purpose. And in my case, I think it's God, but some mm -hmm. bigger world that's out there that when you're in, when you're in a, um, a 60 acre plot of land that your great grandparents own in Austin, when you're visiting your grandparents and there aren't people around and you can hear uh, the spring gurgling up to feed a river and you know that there are endangered salamanders there because you've read about them and you see birds fly by that could be an endangered or threatened species um, and even just sneaking away from family and friends to just sit and observe at age uh, 11, 12 or prior to that at a junior high church camp going to New Life Ranch and getting to sneak away to this amazing pool that was like a magical, I mean I don't know if it was man-made or, or natural, but this pool with fall leaves falling on it that were orange and yellow, and then 
all of a sudden being surprised to see a, a giant koi, which was placed there by man, not nature, um, swimming by. Still, it was this, and nobody was around in the trees. You could hear the, tr the leaves falling and the wind rustling. And uh, I don't know, something about those, all those senses of the feel, the smell, the, the sights, the sounds, um, in those two experiences especially, or others, in my backyard collecting roly-polies or sitting under a bush in our front yard when it was raining to, to just experience and hear and feel nature is really where those, those childhood love for nature experiences were cultivated that connected me first to that and to the curiosity and the biology and the nature and environmental awareness about, I'm enjoying this, I want others to enjoy it, and I don't want it to go away. I don't want it all cut down so that I can't have this experience and so that others can't have this experience. And so a lot of that was to bring in the people, right? Grandma, who uh, encouraged us to get out to this land and do it. And my parents, who would allow me to go play outside uh, for hours on end uh, with the, the knowledge that I was safe and around and they could check on me. Uh, nonetheless, I could be out exploring and playing and, and walking to the park. And so there were people that encouraged and cultivated that, that love for science, just like later towards undergraduate and graduate work, there were people that influenced my uh, knowledge and growth from interacting with people and being able to impact people and being impacted by them. Right. And so, um, if, if our listeners can't tell already, I mean, Mark, you've got a lot of passion for what you do, and which makes our conversations just fascinating to me. I've, I've used that word twice now, and I mean it. Uh, it's really just a thrill, you know, to be involved in dialogue with you because the places that you go in your conversations take us to, um, you've described so, so much detail, you know, from your experience, and, and you're able to, to hold detail uh, with rigor also, you know, in, in, in terms of uh, research and academia, which I find very interesting. But what I wanted to get to next is related, um, your love for nature and then also your study of science and now teaching science has led you to some really interesting places, you know, including the farm, uh, the back 40 or 60 acres and, and these, uh, these camps and the classroom, but also out of country and other, and other interesting places. Do you, do you want to talk a little bit about where it's taken you? Yeah, sure. And so, of course, you've heard about my love for nature maybe too much uh, now, but uh, as you can tell, I'm passionate about it. So yeah. that combined with this, I guess it was that same curiosity and maybe uh, growing up in a church that was big on supporting missionaries or people that lived in other countries. And instead of supporting one or two fully, which is a great model to have. We had, you know, maybe 60 missionaries or missionary families that we gave smaller amounts of money to as a church. Uh, but what that did was allow me to get updates from and hear from and once a year even meet some people that were coming in from different countries. Um, and that really kind of, again, as a later elementary or junior high student, really kind of expanded my perspective on not just nature here and places I can see, but nature and cultures in other countries. And so that really combined to help me be interested in and seek out opportunities to travel other places. Yeah. I, I love hearing about other cultures, watching documentaries about other places, especially, uh, I admit it, nature documentaries. Um, and so that led to, well, and even doing church, you know, mission trips, short-term trips to go help out at an orphanage or help build a church or uh, run vacation Bible schools in southern Texas, northern Mexico. That was a junior high trip, and I think the first time I flew in a plane. Um, so it started there and then spread to really uh, kind of a culminating experience, I think, would have been 
during my senior year as an undergraduate student at Oklahoma Baptist University, a study abroad to three week trip to Guyana, South America, and that was to do some biodiversity um, studies on the insects, so kind of a entomology biodiversity study as an undergrad. So worked with the Biodiversity Center down there with the University of Guyana and a professor, Dr. Dale Utt at Oklahoma Baptist University and a few other students and colleagues. Um, and again, I did the same thing. I snuck off, mm -hmm. which may not have been smart given <laughs> that there had been uh, some children who had died from um, jaguar attacks. Uh, but nonetheless, oh my. snuck off to uh, go into the forest. Um, mm -hmm. And that this one was more of a... Uh, it's amazing, the biodiversity in rainforest is so much bigger than here. It's more towards the equator, it's warmer, there's great biodiversity of trees, which means there's a great biodiversity of animals, including insects. And so getting to see that just amplified this idea, and I'd read about it, but being there is different. Mm -hmm. uh, this idea that there's just so much to be curious about and to learn and to see and to just bask in the presence of. So that was there, and then when I snuck off uh, and just found acre after acre of clear-cut mm. primary forests, yeah. uh, and, but having also interacted with the locals, the, the people there, seeing that they, they have to make a living. It's, it's not just nature. There's this balance. There are people. Um, there's economics to consider. There's people to feed. Uh, it, it was really tough to wrestle with, and so that really helped moderate my uh, maybe environmental passion, which I'd been acting out in high school and maybe even part of college for pushing recycling and pushing some things, um, helped run a, a Sea Green, S-E-E, -E, Green, uh, environmental fair at Seminole Public Library as a part of his honors project as an undergrad. So I was really pushing this environmental stuff, but then going to Guyana, middle of my senior year, uh, really helped moderate my, okay, there are people involved here too, and there's going to have to be some some compromise in society, in the world, in America, in Oklahoma, with uh, how many decisions we can make or agendas we can push that help the environment, but what's the cost to humans and society and the economics? So I saw that firsthand on the ground in Guyana, uh, which really helped me moderate uh, my conversations with other people as I came back. So that was a great one. And then I had one more semester, I graduated, and while I was doing that, I was working on getting to Madagascar. So that happened just a few months later, um, and Madagascar had always been a just kind of passion area for me. I, I think because, well, several, several reasons. When I was doing my reading and watching documentaries, it would always pop up as this amazingly biodiverse place. It was remote, right, even farther away than getting to South America and Guyana. It's, way over there uh, off the Mozambique Channel, southeast of Africa. Uh, it's an island that separated you know, 90 billion years ago as the landforms moved around on the tectonic plates. So it had been isolated a long time. Well, 90 million years ago from Africa, 60 million years ago from Australia and India, separated, and so approximately. So it's had all these years to have plants and animals fungi evolve and change and be different than anywhere else. So it was this very exotic, far away, extremely biodiverse. And you combine that with the fact that our church was supporting missionaries there, who I got to meet in person uh, early on at the church. And then hearing about the people and the culture that's so kind of unique and mysterious, these people that had only been there 
a thousand years. They don't know if there were people on the island before that, and they came all the way over from Indonesia, not from Africa, uh, on these boats. So just this really interesting culture and biodiversity and exotic faraway place. Um, and, and you kept seeing it come up in books as being a biodiversity hotspot. Um, that is one of the places on Earth that has this extremely high rate of endemism, animals and plants that are found nowhere else, and also that's in danger because of the extremely low socioeconomic status of that country. It's a developing country, so they need those resources more than anywhere else, but it's also the richest in a lot of these resources. And then you'd see it on these 1040 window sheets. So the 1040 window is a, um, a Christian graphic that shows these areas that uh, they feel like people need to hear about. Um, their faith in Christianity the most to help them. And so it was this target of missionaries, this target of environmental work, uh, and it just kept popping up everywhere. So I'd always had this dream of getting there, and that um, became a reality as I connected with more of this missionary, Clint Aikens, that um, was there in Madagascar. And so through him and through doing my own research and work, I got set up this two-month trip right after I graduated to be in Madagascar teaching English uh, and traveling around the island some to get a sense of the environmental um, injustices happening there, the state of ecology there, and the different tribes and people around the island. So those are two big ones. Um, been lucky to go other places, Costa Rica for a honeymoon. Um, as an undergraduate, did a summer mission trip to 10 or 12 countries in Europe, um, just traveling around to learn the culture and talk to people there. Um, and I'm trying to think of others. Baja, California, so in Mexico for a, a biology conference as a master's student. So uh, yes, I've loved my travel, but I hope I've taken away from it. It hasn't just been me going, it's been me learning and reflecting on these different cultures in this world that we live in. Sure, that's what I'm hearing. I'm hearing you reflect now about you know the experiences that you gained and, and I know for a fact that you're using those experiences in, well, in our conversation. Uh, but also, I'm sure these are coming up with your students and with other professors and faculty and other organizations that you're involved with, for sure. And what I'm hearing, this is just me, uh, and we've talked a little bit, so it's not new information, but I'm seeing several aspects of you. Not that it all has to be cohesive. You know, we have different parts of ourselves that are engaged in different ways. But this idea of, um, you know, culture meets land, you know, and meets biodiversity and um, your love for the land and uh, therefore anything that we love, this is me talking, that we become connected with and we care about, when it, when it becomes adversely affected, you know, when it's threatened or um, when, it, you know, when it may go away, there's a natural impulse to, to want to do something about that. You know, we could call it love or we could call it preservation or protection or um, solutions, you know, whatever it might be called, but there's something that about us, and I'm strongly sensitive in you and hear it, um, of wanting to have an impact for maintaining biodiversity, uh, including the people that are, that are living on the land. And you have these extremes there in Madagascar. You have uh, extreme biodiversity and, and maybe also extreme poverty and needs from indigenous peoples. And so I guess through that lens, are there a couple of takeaways that you had in terms of how those two came together, the, the culture of the, of the Malagasy? Malagasy. Malagasy yeah. people. Malagasy, Thank you for that. Yeah. yeah. The Malagasy people and, and the biodiversity, you know, maybe how they're, they were able to come together effectively or in constructively and maybe some instances where that didn't happen. Yeah, sure. And, 
And man, there's this world, this topic that for some reason I don't get as curious about, and that's politics. And unfortunately, that plays a big role in all of this. So it's kind of this black hole in my knowledge area. Sure. Uh, But so many of the decisions on what companies can come in to use the natural resources in Madagascar or where the government will funnel some money to have some uh, park rangers, for instance, to help keep preserved areas preserved in Madagascar or in the U.S., right? That makes a big difference to how people and the environment are interacting. And so, yeah. so much of that is kind of beyond me, even after that trip and a later research trip to Madagascar, that it's so hard to know what to do. It's almost uh, freezes you a little bit to know. And so I've had to start a little bit smaller with, um, in 2001, when I got to go back, uh, I'm going to go to Masuala Peninsula, so uh, the largest preserved area in Madagascar up in the northeast, and at least try to do a survey of the biodiversity there. And I was able to do that through this program called Radeau de Cime. Uh, I brought the book to remind me. Um, it's yeah. a French-run program uh, that's funded by a perfume and odorant company out of Belgium because they wanted to find new smells and odors and flavors. Yes. And so they were kind of the push behind doing it, not to exploit the forest, but to use it so that people would want to save the forest and the, the amazing new biodiversity and smells and tastes that are there that we hadn't even discovered yet. So they allowed scientists to come along. So a colleague, Dante Fanolio, and a, a staff member of the Oklahoma City Zoo, Jim Stout at the time, all went in 2001 to uh, do our little part to try to catalog the biodiversity. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were able to find a, a new frog that we named, a new species of frog that we named, and then worked with some other colleagues from Italy to uh, look at some of his um, samples of specimens that he found and found out those were a couple of new species and um, that we were able to compare to the one we found. So part of that was trying to, uh, I guess, find the data along with all the other data that was already there to then share back out with the Malagasy people and with the world that look at this amazing resource you have. So I think the short answer is Mm -hmm. it really came down to education. I saw that the people in Madagascar that were able to be educated, and I don't necessarily mean a formal education Mm -hmm. or degree, although they have universities there and people get bachelor's degrees and beyond, of course, uh, but people that were educated because they were living next door to a national park and the ranger could help show them the usefulness or how to live in harmony with nature, or uh, scientists who were working at the Tsimbazaza Zoo, the zoo in the capital, Antananarivo, who were doing research and trying to educate um, other their peers or college students or elementary age students about what a, a beautiful natural resource they had there. So the short answer is education. I think that's the people that are there um, understanding the amazing biodiversity and being proud of what they have, not thinking, oh, I'm a, I live in a developing country or I only make 400 US dollars a year that I live on. Mm-hmm. I'm not important and my country's not important. Giving them pride in their country and their culture, though it might not be as long standing because the people came you know, a thousand plus years ago. Right. Still, they can be proud of this culture that's been built in this country they're on. And my hope would be that as we're able to share that out through perhaps these nonprofits that I'm a part of, Mm -hmm. or um, social media, or publishing papers on the biodiversity, the people can be aware and be proud and therefore want to preserve or live more in harmony with the nature. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And so, yeah, you really went into 
to collect data, to, to do some research, um, but also in terms of education, it's communicating a message. You know, here's what we found. And then um, with the hope that, you know, this would be received by the local peoples and said, you know what, that, that does make us special. You know, that, that's something to be proud of and that we can own um, about ourselves and that we want to therefore care about. You know, where other outside entities, this is just me talking, other outside entities may want to come in and exploit that for short-term gains, which humanity is really good at. You know, and so we, we have models of how to do that. But this is a different kind of model, a more sustainable model for continuing to utilize the resources, the plants, um, the uh, resources that are available locally, but in a way that makes it sustainable more long-term and includes the cultural component, which that's coming up again. So that where the people meet uh, the um, people meet the plants, you know, and the animals, the the biodiversity comes into the cultural awareness. Yeah. And on a small scale, we see it. I mean, there are you know Conservation International and WWF, yeah. and Nature. You know, there are lots of, of people working there more towards that sustainable environmental goal and making some headway and some progress. Again, the governments in power mm -hmm. can decide mm. that uh, some other country can come exploit all the oil resources right off the coast where all of the whales are, are passing through you know, and disturbing that migration pattern or can come uh, do some strip mining for precious metals um, or uh, jewels. And so it, it comes down, even if the people know, yeah. uh, the government makes such a huge decision. And so there are um, groups um, out of Africa or elsewhere that are trying to influence that political. So there are lots of people doing things, environment, um, politically, and with the people for, for AIDS awareness and vaccination campaigns and um, sexual education that, that are happening various places. And our organizations, either joiners or partners from Madagascar that I serve on the boards for, uh, do try to uh, take the slightly different approach, perhaps, and that's knowing and understanding the culture of the people. And it's not just culture of the Malagasy people, it's culture of all of the tribes. So if you're going to work in uh, one part of Madagascar, it may be Betsileo people, or if you're going to work near the capital, it's the Marina people, the bigger group. And they have slightly different dialects, and they have different... Um, ancestral um, traditions and knowing that to then apply that to some environmental justice or political activism um, can be very important and that's where having Clint Akins, the, the gentleman I mentioned earlier who I set up that original trip with, um, now in the US but having his years and years of knowledge of different cultures, knowing the language, knowing the people, having worked with the government officials, having worked with um, church clergy. He has connections there that can help those two organizations. Joiners on the religious side doing church leadership training and um, getting educational materials translated into their language and partners from Madagascar more on the social justice, uh, orphanage, higher education, uh, food resources uh, side of things can work in the context of the culture of the people. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't realize how all that came together officially till now. Yeah. Um, very interesting. And so you've spent a lot of time and a lot of, uh, a lot of thought, a lot of care, you know, in Madagascar. You know, there's, there's big pieces of you that, that are there, you know, and, and, and invested. Um, I guess this is just a, a question that I'm just curious about. What, what, is your, what is your hope for 
for Madagascar in terms of, of the things that you're, that you're engaged with there? Yeah, so I, I guess my hope is, I think it ties back to that education. If, the, if somehow through the curriculum of the schools or through the churches or through parachurch organizations or governmental organizations, there can be more spread to help people understand their habits, their decisions can affect sustainability. And, and that's not just environmental sustainability that a lot of people think of. It's like you said, using the environment so that people can live in Madagascar. The Malagasy people can live in Madagascar. Mm -hmm. People can come visit Madagascar as tourists or business people to set up shop there temporarily or long term. Uh, sustainability means economic, social justice, and environmental, I believe. Mm -hmm. And so it's um, if people knew that and can see that, it's better for them. The gov if the government could understand it, that's better for, for them and their people, um, then it's going to be better in the long term. And, and as I'm saying it, right, it's not just Madagascar. This is, this is anywhere. This is Guyana. Yeah. This is yeah. Oklahoma City. Mm -hmm. This is Edmond. This is helping educate people. Uh, right here in the metropolitan area about the importance of compost, yeah. uh, which we mentioned in my bio, right? It's, yeah. it's the same thing that needs to happen there that needs to happen here. It's not just a, hey, you over there, you need to do this. It's a, look what we're working on here and have seen working. Um, now let's see if that works there too in your context or how you can change it and take ownership of it yeah. to make it work in your context and in your capital and in your town and with your family. And so... Yeah, I think again, and maybe it's because I, you know, teach as an instructor in biology and work here at University of Central Oklahoma, but I feel like it's, it's education. I wish there was a system set up there that people could be educated, and I wish there is a system set up here where people could be even more educated about living in harmony with nature. It's better for our society. It's better for our economics, and it's going to be better for our children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. Yes, and, and, and I'm an advocate of all that you're talking about, too. And so, I mean, the time is now, you know. And I think many people that are going to be listening to this know that. I think that we're going to have people that are, that are hearing our conversation and think, you know, I'm involved in some of these things in my own way. Like you, like you importantly point out, it's not just about Madagascar. It is about Madagascar. But it includes uh, what I would call a global perspective. You know, very much where you're coming from is, is this, we're all in this together. There's different pockets of the world, there's different cultures, and within different cultures, there's subcultures. And we need to do our best to understand how those operate, especially in, in, the, in the case of this conversation, in context of the people, their economic needs, their health needs, their societal values, etc., and, and what they're doing with the land, and what they need from the land, how they've lived with the land. And then how others may be looking at utilizing the land, you know, and that that gets complex really quick. And those are the times that we live in. Again, I think a lot of people hearing this are going to know that, but I like the segue. You know, you, you mentioned the compost conference, and I want to go there, so that's why I said it. But also, it's just educating one another, having conversations just like this. So those that are listening in, I'm sure there's ways that you're going to be able to get involved uh, with Mark if you'd like to. We'll provide some contact information for you in the show notes. But just be thinking about things that you could do, that you're already doing, that are effective. But maybe you're hearing some pieces of your childhood that, you know, you had a fascination for nature, or maybe it's something different. Regardless, maybe that's just waiting to be utilized. And so that's a purpose of one of these, uh, of these conversations is that uh, Mark's passion might 
excites you, you know, and he's teaching right now. So I'm, I'm his student. <laughs> and, so, um, and so I did want to mention that, you know, that, uh, that this is interactive. But I wanted to hit the compost conference because it is so related. And so um, how did you get started? First of all, what is the Oklahoma Compost Conference, for those that don't know? And how did you get involved in, and what do you all do? Yeah, sure. Uh, first of all, you have an A so far, so good job. Yes. Yeah, I'll work on extra credit for you later in case you, you know, fall behind. <laughs> uh, the Oklahoma Compost Conference, kind of like what I do at UCO, was not my brainchild. It was something that aligned with some of what I love, maybe even my passion, and I was able to join in and contribute and help grow it and sustain it, uh, which is where I find myself uh, taking adopting things, coming into things, and being a change advocate to make them more efficient and better. I love efficiency for some reason. So even though I'm not an engineer, I'm a biologist, but I love efficiency. So I like to come into things and help um, sustain them and keep them going. Oklahoma Compost Conference, uh, of course, the idea behind it is to help encourage uh, the use, manufacture, purchase of compost. And it's not, that's not necessarily manure. Some people hear the word manure when they hear compost. Compost is this rich soil amendment or cover that can be used in agriculture, that can be used in construction, that can be uh, used to divert waste from the landfill. Uh, in Oklahoma City, I think the stat I just heard was over 40% to 50% of the things we put out on our curb and send to the landfill are organic matter that could have been composted. Mm. Landfills take up space, they cost the city money, uh, what do you do with it when it's done? It can leach out harmful chemicals and other pollutants. So diverting uh, waste, and I have my air quotes out for waste because it's not waste, uh, to recycling or to composting uh, is better for the city. It's a more sustainable setup for our city. And so the Oklahoma Compost Conference is helping to educate uh, people from around the Oklahoma City metro area and sometimes even out of state that come in for this about the uh, not necessarily residential, uh, but community or commercial production and use of compost. So it really was a brainchild of a former student of mine. So when I was teaching intro zoology at University of Oklahoma back in, I think, 2004, 2005, uh, one of my amazing students, who so amazing that I've kept in contact with her, Kelly Dillow, works at the Department of Environmental Quality for the state of Oklahoma. And she has the same sort of passion for uh, nature and the environment and sustainable use. And she worked with some colleagues there and connected with University of Central Oklahoma's Office of Sustainability mm -hmm. just as I was changing jobs to come here to start up this collaborative effort, this Oklahoma Compost Conference. So we just had our fifth conference uh, was that last week, two weeks ago? I think it was last week October at the time 10th. of this interview. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Last, last week to the day. Uh, and that was our, our fifth annual one. And so I've been on that advisory group to assist with this brainchild of Kelly Dillow, and she's brought in an amazing group of people from uh, home builders to compost manufacturers to higher ed individuals to city of Oklahoma City individuals. So it's this amazing collaborative group that all have some skin in the game. They, mm -hmm. they could see the benefits of uh, encouraging the use of compost uh, in Oklahoma. And so we have about, it's not a big conference, but we have about 100 to 120 people that, that gather. Mm -hmm. uh, we bring in keynoters from last week was 
uh, Denver Water, so their water uh, for the city of Denver, to talk about how they can use compost to help um, filter out pollutants that are in runoff. So it's a, it's a water management issue, a wastewater issue that can be addressed some by compost. Uh, we had a grower, an organic farmer from uh, Seattle, Washington area who was in also from Kiss Organics to talk about his work and how he does soil amendment with uh, different types of compost to help have the best grows possible from organic fruits and vegetables to cannabis growers in the state and that's why uh, Oklahoma was interested given our recent law changes. So uh, we had him in. Uh, home builders have done, you know, compost blankets laid down to increase turf because if you take off all the topsoil to build houses, mm -hmm. it's just not what's left is not that topsoil that's useful, as you know, forestry Charles. Yeah. So especially in Oklahoma. In Oklahoma, it's clay. clay soils. Yeah. So it can be used as a soil amendment to help with growing and agriculture or as a top coat to reduce weeds. Um, construction sites to reduce erosion. The silt fences can blow out. Uh, for about the same cost, you can use compost socks, so these giant pantyhose tubes mm -hmm. that are filled with a certain larger grain of compost. Uh, will filter out pollutants and stop erosion from happening off construction sites or on road builds from road cuts from Department of Transportation mm -hmm. uh, and last longer than the silt fences do. So same cost but last longer ends up being cheaper uh, to use those. And so uh, we try to get all of the people that would have a say in the policies or usage or contracts for any of those uses um, to just see that we have producers. Minic Material is a big one that's an Oklahoma-based local company mm -hmm. that has so much acreage of finished compost that they have they've had to stop taking lawn clippings and, and manure waste and other because they have no more room. So there's all this comp, this product sitting there that could be used for the betterment of our environment and our city uh, that's waiting. And so we want to encourage the use and the policies that will allow use for build sites and construction and road construction uh, to be able to use that product. Well, and so on that note, with folks that are listening in, if there's any entrepreneurs that uh, I hope are listening in, especially this part, you've probably already taken notes because it sounds like there's an opportunity. There's plenty of supply. And Mark has just mentioned a few of the, the ways that compost can be utilized. I've already, again, been educated. I've learned something new. And so there's efficiency involved, like in the construction and these socks that you, that you mentioned. I keyed in on that, where runoff can be a real problem. You know, we lose soil, we you know, gasoline and oil, and if there's fertilizer in the area, all kinds of other impediments and sediments get into the water supply uh, and can be a real problem. And here's a solution. And it's cheaper, it's efficient, and it sounds to me like it's more effective. Yeah. It's more yeah. cost effective, and I, I assume it's equally effective yeah. in terms of functionality. Right, yeah, or even more so in some cases. And, okay. and we usually do have somebody from the OSU Extension that does a nice demonstration. Actually, we've had him at each of the five conferences, uh, he or his assistant, mm -hmm. to uh, look at no-till agriculture. So we didn't talk about that, but Oklahoma's an agricultural state. So many people, just because of tradition, do this kind of traditional tilled agriculture and add fertilizers. Um, well, it turns out you can actually get, just by improving the quality of your soil um, or doing a top coat of compost, um, you don't even have to till it in, it'll, it'll work its way in. It holds water better, so you're not spending as much money on irrigation and watering, and that means it doesn't run off the fertilizer if you choose to still use fertilizer. Uh, or in and of itself, you can have amendments in the compost that will fertilize without having to use um, man-made fertilizer, synthetic fertilizer. So better for the environment, cheaper, better yield, better product, 
has some pest control or you can use other things that are more organic for pest control. So even in that agricultural area, uh, to extend the use of compost is, is another great efficiency, more sustainable, better for your pocketbook, better for the environment setup. It's a win-win-win. I'm picturing land right now. I've always wanted to own some land and do something good with it, you know, some, some stewardship and, and maybe produce something. But uh, I'm here, I'm seeing big fields with compost, layers of compost yeah. uh, amended and, and included. And that would, that would be a huge change in, in agriculture in Oklahoma. So again, entrepreneurs or people that are, are looking at sustainable farming practices or gardening practices or construction, We'll make sure and get that contact uh, that contact information into the show notes as well because yeah. I'm interested in all of that. Yeah, and, and I feel like I've been at, and you can tell me if we don't want to go here yet, but I feel like I've been at this more 30,000-foot view, these global problems, environmental problems, city policies on compost use. I do want to mention that you know, partners from Madagascar, joiners are nonprofits that individuals can contribute to or or go on trips with us, mm -hmm. uh, eco-tours even, that we do occasionally. Oh. Uh, compost conference you can register for, it's fairly cheap, and come. We'll have another one in October 2020, uh, probably at the OSU Extension office off Northwest 63rd in Oklahoma City, it looks like. Um, so we'll get the date out for that. That's a fairly cheap way to get involved and come. You can compost your own yard scraps. Plenty of videos online, either that we've produced to the Oklahoma Compost Conference Committee or that you can find yourself on YouTube to help you see how to do backyard composting to divert your own waste um, so that you're, um, you only have to put your trash can out every two weeks or three weeks or whatever it is mm -hmm. uh, because you're using that. And you can reuse it on your, your lawn yourself or get rid of it in a more productive way. Um, or fertile ground, a community composting cooperative that a friend of mine, Terry Craghead, started. You can buy into that. You might be on their bike route or might be on their driving route. Well, they'll come pick up your compost. Uh, compostable items uh, once a week. So there are ways that individuals can make a difference in Madagascar, in higher education by contributing to UCOs or others' causes or to composting and the environment. Yeah. And as the old adage goes, you know, think globally, act locally. Exactly. You know, anything that we can do, anything that I can do, I'll point to myself, that I can do with this information that I've gathered today and learned about and put into action. You know, I've, I've got some things sparked in me and, and I'm thinking about, I can see that in my house doing things this way. Uh, in the garden, I can have this, uh, you know, new structures in place that are pretty easy to do and they're, they're cost effective, you know, so this gives me permission and uh, maybe the, the reason to go ahead and do those things. Mark, we're about out of time, but I did want to take a couple of minutes. We've mentioned it, and I think it's come up indirectly in some ways, but I wanted to hit transformative learning just maybe to close it, to sort of bookend things if we want to. So if with a few more minutes, if you wanted to describe anything else about what's going on at UCO in terms of transformative learning, and uh, maybe just how that's impacting students, you know, th through the lens of teaching, and maybe what it means to uh, the campus and possibly the state and beyond. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to talk about that. Um, and what's amazing, Charles, is that I was nervous I wouldn't have good stories or enough to say. <laughs> I think you've proven everyone wrong. Uh, and we haven't even gotten to my day job. Yes. No. This, the, at no. UCO, I'm the assistant director for the Student Transformative Learning Record. This is a program that some folks on campus built just before I got here and then I came and was lucky enough to help with. I was excited about it and really pushed my way in mm -hmm. to try to assist with it. And what it is is transformative learning is this adult learning theory uh, and perhaps it spreads even down to adolescents or others, but it says that adults have these certain frameworks and perspectives 
and sometimes there's some observation or experience they have that doesn't fit into that framework or that perspective, that mental schema that they've developed through previous uh, life experiences. And so that creates this kind of disorienting dilemma or cognitive dissonance, if you will, that they have to wrestle with. Well, I take it back. You could ignore it and just say, well, uh, maybe that was an anomaly. It won't happen again. And then you have to wait till it happens again. Or, or you decide to wrestle with it and say, that, that doesn't match with my experience in the past. Why is that? Do I need to expand my perspective, my framework, my worldview um, about my place in the world or what the world is about or, or how it works? And if you choose to do that and critically reflect on the experience and your past life experience, uh, then you will expand your perspective, expand your framework, maybe even to the point of uh, complete transformation. And so at UCO, we've set up this system to encourage, um, measure how impactful, and record these transformative experiences that have helped students expand their perspective, maybe to the complete point of transformation, complete change, complete worldview shift. And that's what Stellar is. It's a record of students' transformative learning. And so I get to help with that. We, we were lucky enough to um, sell it in a way, describe it in a way, what we were hoping to do back in 2013, 2014 to the US Department of Education, that they said, yes, this is amazing. If you can do this, here's $7.8 million to do so. And part of that is to implement it at UCO and then share it with other universities. Um, we're just coming off a visit yesterday. Some couple folks from Singapore Management University were here learning about it. We were in Dublin, Ireland last December to train some folks at Technological University of Dublin Blanchardstown campus because they are stellarizing, we call it. So they're taking this framework of, okay, students are learning in their discipline. They're learning their major. They're learning their biology, their engineering, their nursing. Uh, their sales business, but they are also growing as, and having experiences that can expand their perspective in leadership, health and wellness, global cultural competencies, service learning, research and creative activities, uh, at least at UCO. Those are our core tenets that we really want to measure these students' transformative experiences in. So other campuses are seeing the value of this or we're already trying to find a way to measure how impactful inside the classroom assignments and projects and outside the classroom work and projects and service opportunities are impacting the students to help meet our goals. So our goals aren't just to graduate students who know their discipline, know their technical skills, and many other universities are the same. Our goals are to graduate students that are ready to interact with and contribute to the world. UCO in particular, a lot of our students stay in the Oklahoma City metro or the state, mm -hmm. more so than some other schools. So we really have this mission of contributing to the Oklahoma City metro area. We're a, a metropolitan campus. We're not a campus that's on the outskirt. Our goal is to serve Oklahoma City, Edmond metro area uh, and to help students be prepared to contribute to that when they leave here. So this stellar thing, this record of students' transformative experiences is the way that we're trying to do that. Mm -hmm. And so many of the benefits, and we could go on for another episode, which might be a good idea. Who knows? But, but for sure, for me, my interest is, has been, you know, <clears throat> there's an emphasis, emphasis on meaningful learning experiences. And that, and that can mean different things. But certainly it means reflecting. It's, it's what do I, how do I interpret uh, what I've learned in the classroom? How do I interpret the, 
the sushi rolling class that I, that I took on campus that I just happened to be able to swipe my Stellar card for and say that I attended, what did that experience mean to me and how did it affect my educational experience while I was at UCO? And these are some of the stories I've heard from students. <clears throat> and some of them have been transformational for students. It affects their career path. It affects their sense of their place in the world. And they're able to communicate with other students, with faculty and staff who are being trained in transformative learning practices, how to prompt or question or offer assignments to students that may help elicit responses to help them gauge what kind of transformation has happened in these young people's lives. And I'm telling you, as a past student, if I would have had access to like this, I would have totally been all in on it because it's, uh, it includes the whole person. In a very, in a rigorous way. I mean, we're measuring. It's, it's um, very much educational. It's a very much educational experience. And you're including the academic knowledge, the classroom knowledge. It doesn't go away. That's still rigorous also. <clears throat> and I just think it's really timely that that's all included in, in our changing world and in what the workforce is looking for these days, more flexibility, more adaptability in, in graduates. And UCO has some initial data that shows that, you know what, students may be more adaptable, they may be more flexible as new hires, and, uh, and hopefully long-term as well, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We have some of the data, nothing conclusive, and we're still working on publications, but the indications from the data are that students who are uh, getting stellar credit, if you will, so they're in class and out of class having experiences that they reflect on or they choose to go to to expand their perspective in Asian culture by going to sushi rolling night, for instance. Uh, those students at UCO who do that, uh, or even if they do it at UCO and then go to a different university, they have higher retention and graduation rates, which is good for the student economically. It means less student loan debt in the long run if they can stay and work towards their um, degree goal. Um, and then we're now seeing some of our stellar students, those who have done stellar things. Every student at UCO is a stellar student. They can all participate in these activities, but the ones that have a are intentionally seeking out these experiences to expand their perspective. We're now looking at, okay, what does it do for them in the workplace? And we're just starting that study now that we've implemented it in 2015. We have graduates who have had the full stellar experience, if you will, at UCO to see how it's affecting now and impacting the Oklahoma City metro area. But even just on our campus, we're seeing great outcomes from the students who participate in it with their success here at UCO and beyond. Right, and it's so promising. And I just get excited about it. I, you know, I'm an educator or teacher at heart too. That's a big part of my identity and, and what I enjoy doing. And so um, I've been following along and, and, and Mark, I appreciate you involving me. And I've, I've been stellar trained. I'm not sure what that means for me, you know, in terms of how I'm gonna be able to utilize, but I'm trusting my creativity and, and uh, I would like to, you know, I'm, I'm attempting to include some transformative learning components in my business now, and, I, and I'm looking at ways to, to do that in a way that's effective and that maybe I can even you know, do a little bit of research and, and find ways to, uh, to see how coaching and transformative learning intersect. So that's my interest, and in, in then I just think it hits the whole person, you know, that they're able to, um, it's a system, too. It's a system that already exists, and I think it's informed my coaching. Uh, and I'd like to, to dive more into it. So that's been my interest. Yeah, and we really appreciate, I should mention that Charles is serving on our Stellar Employer Advisory Board. So uh, we're not just doing it insular at the university as academics um, from our ivory tower. We have, we have folks from different companies that hire our grads 
and people like Charles who are in the community or wanting to implement transformative learning into their business practice who inform us on what they would like to see out of UCO grads or what they think of this stellar setup or this transformative learning. So that input has been invaluable for not just doing what we want to meet our mission and our needs, but knowing how we can serve the Oklahoma City Metro uh, community, governments, educational institutions, or companies. Yeah, well, thank you for that. It, it's been a pleasure to be involved and, and to see how, how this all fits together. I mean, there's other major employers that are involved too, which is, it's pretty cool to be in the room with them and just hear their experiences and, and sort of be a, a witness to some of it and to have some level of impact, and, and uh, I've really appreciated that. Well, Mark, I think we can probably end there. That seems to be a good note. I do want to say that we'll have links in the show notes and make sure to send folks to UCO and the Transformative Learning Program and, and all of the other great work that you're involved with. We'll, we'll let people know about those in, in our show notes. So just thanks again for joining me today. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Charles. You've been listening to the Live Your Purpose podcast. I hope you've been inspired by my conversation with today's guest. If you like what you hear, please share with your social networks and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. I'm your host, Charles Gossett, Life Purpose Coach and founder of Full Integration Coaching. To learn more about the life coaching, public speaking, and retreat services that I offer, visit fullintegrationcoaching.com. And you can follow along with me on Facebook and Instagram at Full Integration Coaching. Until next time, remember, you are meant to live on purpose. Start living yours today. <laughs>